this is the biggest story in the world. It's clearly the most important story. From The Guardian. And yet you scan the daily newspapers and it's almost absent. It's defeated journalism for almost two decades. We carry on flogging a load of dead horses in exactly the same way and it doesn't work. And if we ignore this story... We are going to kill ourselves. Last week, the editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, laid out his legacy project, climate change. What can you do that lifts this beyond something that people are bored of reading about? What can you do that will force them to sit up and pay attention? With only six months, though, can the team step up to the challenge? This week, Alan gathers his team for a brainstorming session on the lurid yellow sofas of the morning conference room. About 30 people sitting awkwardly low, handpicked by Alan. Uh, thank you for those of you who did respond over Christmas. Um, I was literally sitting in an armchair on Christmas Eve and pinged out this email, um, and I wasn't necessarily expecting you all to respond over Christmas, but lots of you did, and thank you for doing that. So what, what I want to talk about is not what kind of environmental coverage we can do over the next two or three years. I'm being very selfish and I'm just thinking about what kind of environmental coverage we can do in the next six months in a highly intensive way. It would be sort of... We're very much in an exploratory meeting. Like, you know, here's a bloody great big subject. Which bit of it are we going to focus on? start this debate and you go into all kinds of interesting rabbit warrens. At that point, I think the bets are off, so it's pretty broad. In, in which X says Y and B says Z. At that point, it was kind of like, you know, anything's on the table. And someone else says you can't possibly consider Z without considering X. Scoping, for want of a better word. What is the most focused proposition that we can develop and what, what would we call it? Alan explained how he got the idea when he met the U.S. climate campaigner Bill McKibben in Sweden and asked him the question... What could we do most uh, effectively? And he had a very clear and focused idea. You need to keep it in the ground because... The fossil fuel companies of the world, uh, the Exxons and the Shells, have in their proven reserves someplace between three and five times as much carbon as scientists say will take us past the two-degree mark that the world's governments have agreed is the absolute final utter red line. Don't cross this threshold for disastrous climate change. And his urgently was, this stuff has to be kept in the ground. Alan knew what he wanted to do, he just didn't know how. As an editor, you sit in your office. You, you don't go out. You don't talk a lot to people. So you're very reliant on your team. Thanks very much, Alan. Uh, it's not just that the language is, is, is stultifying and technocratic and boring. It also completely fails to capture what we're looking at here. I mean, George Monbiot is a brilliant polemicist. I mean, even the word climate change. And activist. It's a bit like calling a, a, a bomb an unexpected delivery or, or, or an invading army um, uh, unwanted visitors. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's such a neutral, defanged term for what we're facing, which is climate breakdown, which is catastrophic failure of the system which has permitted civilization to persist. He's always a, a grit in the oyster. He is not shy about taking 
difficult positions. It's alienating, it's cold, it's technological, it, it also has no emotional content. It doesn't really mobilise people. In the one-man powerhouse. <laughs> Standing centre stage with his colleagues before him, the giant video screen behind, George lays out the kernel of his argument, that we need to reconsider who is to blame. Uh, well, I, I'm very strongly of the opinion that the great and obvious gap here is the producer side of the equation. And it's an amazing thing that in almost every other aspect, every other environmental crisis we face, governments try to deal with both the production and the consumption of the good which is, which is in the frame. So, for instance, if you're trying to protect rhinos, you don't just go after the people who are consuming the rhino horn, you actually try to stop the poaching as well. If you're trying to protect fish stocks, you don't just try to persuade consumers to eat less fish, you set a quota for the amount of fish that can be taken. There's no other international issue where we try to affect it only at the demand end. And it's uniquely crazy to take that position where fossil fuels are concerned because that means you have to affect the con consumer behaviour of 7 billion people rather than just the operations of a few thousand corporations which are taking the stuff out of the ground. Uh, and I think the parallel is a fair one with the tobacco industry where it knew for a long time the science became very, very clear that tobacco caused cancer and people should not smoke. Uh, and they fought to keep that from the public, to sow doubt and confusion over it for as long as possible to protect their profits. I think that's where the fossil fuel companies are now. Ah, oil firms have to be made the pariahs of the world. They have to be stigmatised. They have to be reduced in their stature. So they've got their bad guys. Now what do they do with them? That's a very big question, and one that's taxed finer minds than mine, but I'll give it a go. Um... To the rescue, the fine mind of George Monbiot. He suggests a global political solution. First, there has to be a global recognition of the issue. Then? You have, a, have to have a global agreement that we will decide to leave two-thirds or more. In the ground. So, for George in practice, that means you need to... Set up probably a global auction system which would reflect the carbon density of, of those fuels. So allow however many million tonnes of fossil fuels to be extracted and then auction those off. An auction system that will hit the wallets of the producers. And that's a free market economic solution. Limit what's coming out and let the producers fight with cold hard cash over what's left. It should appeal to the right-wing capitalists as much as it does to the left-wing Greens like myself. It's an idea which needs political consensus and global action. If we want to change the world, and I think this is why Alan has brought us together today, then we've got to actually deploy the measures which are going to change the world. And that's only going to happen through acting at the political level to lay down regulations which say those fossil fuels are going to stay in the ground. Everything else is prodding around on the edges of the problem and not actually grasping that problem. A global political solution makes intellectual sense, but it's not a done deal. Some people would say it's optimistic for The Guardian, possibly even a tad arrogant, to think they can enact this kind of change in just six months. Think about what they're up against there are at least three obstacles. First. The fossil fuel lobby is very big, very rich, 
very well connected and very determined to carry on in the way that it has for the last 150 years. Especially in the US where there's both a lot of carbon and also a great deal of corporate lobbying. The oil and gas sector alone donated 70 million to US candidates and political parties in 2012. And then you've got 13 million in donations from the coal mining, another 18 million in lobbying from the coal mining sector. So you've got hundreds of millions of dollars, probably about a billion a year overall, on US companies trying to persuade policymakers not to act in a way that would significantly harm fossil fuel interests. That's $1 billion a year that the fossil fuel industry spends to protect their interests. And that's just in the US. On top of all that, this isn't just a question of getting the big companies like Exxon, BP and Shell to sign up to a global agreement, because second... The majority are actually owned by states. Um, Andrew, James, Stewart, Anne. Quite a lot of the, there's quite a lot of crossover between ownership and, and governments. I mean, Russia owns most of the resources that are underground. Changing Putin's view in the next 12 months is going to be a bit of a hard, hard one. Something in the region of 90% of all the oil and gas is owned by countries, not by companies. I mean, you know, how does one persuade Saudi Arabia to change its policy on oil? You know, this is a very difficult question. A mammoth task politically. And we don't have a Saudi Arabia office yet. Now, these kinds of agreements are usually forged at international summits in places like Kyoto or Copenhagen. And at the end of this year, more talking. In Paris, which George thinks is a good target for The Guardian to pick. So it, it seems clear that an effective and simple demand of the kind that The Guardian could make gets into the Paris Agreement. That there is at least an outline agreement to start looking at keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Makes sense. But here's our third problem. The likelihood of making any progress at any international summit is... Minimal. Minimal. I mean, it, it, we, we, we will not get any agreement which gives us any hope of globally reducing emissions by more than a percent or two over the next decade. We have to understand the, summit, the summits are rigged. Um, it's a fiendishly complex process. We have been discussing our global agreement on climate change for more than 20 years now. And so far, the progress has been limited. However, there are reasons to be cheerful about Paris because three of the world's largest emitting blocks have now agreed to limit their greenhouse gas emissions. These commitments are not in themselves enough to put the world on a pathway to two degrees. However, they are a start. The summits are fiendishly complex. The majority of the world's fossil fuel is held by states, and the companies that own the rest hold enormous political sway. Is there any hope for the political solution, or do we need another angle? What does the gaffer think? George's point that real action is going to come about through governments and through uh, treaties, that may be right. But it may simultaneously be right that in order to get anybody in the world interested in this, you have to do something uh, more out of the ordinary. Time to take stock. This meeting was meant to find a new way of telling the story. And the biggest question Alan's team need to answer is... What can you do that will force them to sit up and pay attention? For perhaps the first time. 
global agreements, carbon auctions, summits, none of these sound very new. Outside the glass walls of the Guardian meeting room, across the pond to the States, Alan's climate guru, Bill McKibben, has been thinking about this too. A generation ago, when the biggest moral issue in the world was apartheid in South Africa, Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu suggested this tactic, that it was time for the great institutions of the West to cut their economic ties with companies that propped up the apartheid regime. A democratic and free society. If there's ever going to be any kind of international agreement, it'll only be because our political and business leaders are feeling unrelenting pressure from all over the world. This is not a normal movement. There are no great leaders. There's no Dr. King of the climate movement or whatever. The fossil fuel industry is sprawling. It's uh, protean. Uh, and so the resistance to it needs to be the same way. It needs to be like the French resistance during the war, you know, springing up from every corner. And that's why we organize all over the world. Uh, we've organized at 350.org about 20,000 different demonstrations in every country save North Korea. Back in Guardian Towers, some of the staff agree. Um, the campaign element of it gives people some agency and gives people some ownership and that they can sort of touch. In the corner of the room, arguing for a popular people's movement, stands James Randerson. I like to try and make things work. James Randerson has a doctorate in physics, I think. Evolutionary genetics, actually, Alan. Never mind. He's a very sort of thoughtful, conscientious journalist, I think, who cares about getting things right. If I'm honest, I prefer practical solutions over pie-in-the-sky ideology, if you like. Um, uh, I, I mean, actually, in six months, we can ask for something to happen at Paris, but we won't see a result. My worry about having an, an ask which is along the lines of, at Paris, they should set up uh, an auction scheme that will do X, Y, and Z, I think that rapidly gets quite kind of distant and complicated. And while, it, while it, something like that probably has to happen, in terms of a tangible campaign that people can feel part of and can sign up to and, and want to, uh, you know, uh, want to support, I'm not sure that, that that sort of is sexy enough. This popular people's movement that both Bill and James are talking about is sexily called divestment. Divestment is a, is a very simple idea. The idea that... You just take your money away from companies that are involved in extracting fossil fuels. You do that by refusing to buy their shares. It says we do not accept your premise, we do not like what you're doing. It's a way of applying pressure. For moral and economic reasons. If it turns out that the world decides collectively that we are going to stick to the two degrees and we're going to leave all of that carbon in the ground, that presents a major issue for companies like Shell and BP and so on because the market is implicitly assuming that they're going to dig up and sell. Then their valuation now is much higher than it should be. It's a risky investment because we know if we do solve climate change, 
those assets will be worthless. Hold on. Don't know about you, but I don't really have any shares. Neither do I, but... We all have stakes in pension funds, in various forms of investment through our lives, and those investments will almost certainly include shares in fossil fuel companies. That's the exciting part. The change isn't a technological change. It's not scientific change we need. It is now social change. It's Right, so let's just discuss that for a bit. One by one, voices join James's divestment movement. So in my mind, the powerful thing about divestment is that it, it is about delegitimising these businesses. I mean, yeah, you cycle through London, you see posters for Shell with sleeping children saying, power the world, you know? And I think the fossil fuel subsidies, I mean, 700 billion a year subsidising consumption, 90 billion subsidising exploration. So 90 billion dollars a year of taxpayers' money is looking for more fossil fuels we can't have. And that, 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 that's so obvious and makes, should make people so angry. It feels like we've identified the baddies, but I don't think, I don't think they've been delegitimised. Yeah. One, one of you, make your mind up. Well, I suppose it depends a bit who we're aiming at, isn't it? And I think one of the things that we have the power to do with, with our reach is to sound the wake-up call for all the people who haven't woken up or who feel fatalistic about it. Felicity Lawrence pipes up from the yellow sofa. She's well known for her writing on food. But has a very interesting take on corporate responsibility and sustainability. I think the thing about divestment is that it provides a really powerful moral framework that people can, can get behind. And it's a way of applying pressure to... Uh, to, to where the power resides. Uh, and with all these campaigning kinds of journalism, your role as a journalist is to try and hold power to account. Uh, so how do you make things uncomfortable for them? And you need some sort of focus for that. And I think the divestment idea provides that way of prodding in a very uncomfortable way that makes a difference. But not all in the room agree. Is campaigning what journalism does best? Should promoting divestment be the Guardian's role? Jonathan's got his hand out at the back, so let's just... Well, I think that before our power as an institution when it comes to changing the shape of some discourse is the questions we ask and not the answers we provide. Pragmatically, if you want to do a classic newspaper campaign where we wave around, make people feel good, and get something that looks quite concrete, divestment is great. It doesn't actually change the balance sheets of the companies, and it doesn't really, it will do very little, even if it's unimaginably successful, to keep it in the ground. If we had a big success in divestment, we might knock down the, the price of a couple of oil companies, at which point for any fund which isn't making our moral choice, they'll get a better return by buying it. So we actually, we make ourselves poorer. Can I? Can I it doesn't change the value of what's in the ground. It doesn't stop them extracting oil. And it means amoral investors get richer and moral investors get poorer. Um, I'm just going to get George to say something, then I'm going to try and see whether we can just sum up. I think it comes down to whether we intend to change things or whether we intend to be seen to change things. And I completely take the point that Damien and others have made about removing the moral legitimacy from companies and that the divestment plans help that. But you know you're being effective when you get these governments saying, absolutely not, you total bastards, you are the people who tried to stop us obtaining our objectives. 
they're not saying that about divestment because divestment is not that politically scary because it's not actually going to change anything in the long run. It's not, as James says, going to leave fossil fuels in the ground. It's just going to bring in a whole new, new lot of amoral investors who are going to fill the gap which has been left. Who else is going to do what The Guardian is perhaps uniquely equipped to do? Who else is going to not let the politicians off the hook? Who else is going to make this a... A political democratic issue as opposed to a consumerist issue. If we want to actually stop climate breakdown rather than just do something symbolic and showy and demonstrates that the Guardian are really good eggs and that they, they're people with the right values, if we want to actually change the world, that surely has got to be the focus. <laughs> The journalists stream out of the morning conference room, leaving two options on the table. Does The Guardian go for the big global picture, as George proposes, try and intervene in politics and influence international policy? Or does it go for James and Bill's divestment idea and become a campaigner, a paper with an agenda? Well, I've always been slightly nervous about campaigning. We, we, we have done some campaigns on The Guardian, but, but generally in the past, I've wanted to reserve campaigns for things where there is no legitimate cause for discussion. I'm really nervous about the idea of us having a campaign in which we write all the answers and produce the solutions, because I don't think we can, and I'm not even sure that's our role. Our campaigning role is to report in a way that shocks people, wakes them up, tells them things they don't know. The staff are divided, and someone needs to pick. Um, I mean, there was a point at which I felt that Alan had basically decided on something and was... You know, my feeling was, you know, perhaps we're going to have a discussion that will be kind of window dressing, you know, um, or he would or he would basically persuade us all that why we're um, wrong. Um, but actually, it didn't happen like that. I don't know. I mean, we, we, we didn't have a vote on on whether this was going to be a campaign or not. Um, I mean, my, my sense of the people who were in the room there was a majority for, for, for having a campaign. I mean, you know, it was, it was an interesting, really interesting discussion. One of the things I said back to Alan is, are we brave enough? So will Alan let the team decide on whether to become a campaigning organization or will he make a dictatorial call? Next week, we'll find out. The Biggest Story in the World is narrated by me, Alex Kratoski. It's produced by Alana Chance, Lindsay Poulton, Matt Hill, Nabila Shabir, and Lucy Greenwell. Head of audio is Jason Phipps, and the executive producer is Francesca Panetta. We'll be back next week. Subscribe. <laughs>